Welcome to this week's episode of Shapes of Grief. And um, I'm noticing that my voice is a little croaky. I've been teaching quite a lot of hours over the last few days. So my apologies for the croaky voice. Tassine, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You're just outside Manchester, Tassine, and we met on a counseling group for trainees. Yes, we did. Um, so you're in the process of becoming a counsellor? I am, yeah. I've just finished my level four, where I'm just on the process of, and about to start the CBT training as well. Um, so it's been a four-year journey to getting here, which after five years and being out of industry or education for such a long time, it was quite interesting. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm so curious to speak with you today because I shared a talk on grief Mm-hmm. Um, that I did for an Australian group of psychotherapists and you were so keen to watch it and then afterwards you signed up for my grief education program you were listening to some of my podcasts you wrote and said you were so delighted to have found my body of work and I thought okay I have to speak with her and, <laughs> and see what's her story so thank you so much for okay. being here Thank you for your program. I've not started it as per se yet because obviously I was finishing my education side of things, um, but I will hopefully be starting it soon. And I'm really looking forward because your talk alone was so amazing. Um, and so thank, thank you for doing this. Well, I knew that there was something in it that was resonating with you. Um, and I'm grateful for you showing up today. And you said to me, you are way out of your comfort zone today. Very, yes, I am so nervous. I'm like, where do I look? <laughs> I'm so, oh, I don't do this thing at all. It's so nerve-wracking. So tell us a little bit about your background, Tazine. So, um, as you can see, I'm a Muslim. Um, born and brought up in London. Um, and uh, I lost my dad when I was nine and my mum when I was 15. Uh, I'm just going to give a really quick summary just to kind of give you a quick overview and then you can go into whatever you'd like to go into. Um, so my dad at nine, my mom at 15, I was then um, sent to India to live with my maternal uncle um, and then I was staying with an aunt uh, due to family things over there. I was staying with an aunt instead. She ended up with a brain tumour so then she passed away. Then I went to stay back with that maternal uncle and he ended up with liver sclerosis and he passed away. Just pause one second. Goodness. So you were being raised in London by your mom and dad, mm-hmm. um, a young Muslim girl, you said, yeah. and both your parents died in a six-year period, mm-hmm. which meant that you were orphaned yeah. and sent to live with relatives in India. Mm-hmm. And I had a brother who stayed in London because he was like, I can't live there. Um, and I mean, the reasons I was left in India, I mean, in hindsight, they were amazing reasons, and I don't blame my guardians in London at all. I, I think it was the best thing they did for me. Um, but I was literally kind of taken there on the pretense of a wedding and then left there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So yes. the, you were 15 years old and you were lied to? Basically, you, were, yeah. you were told you were going to a wedding mm-hmm. and then you never got to come home. And I don't blame them at all because I had at that point, I was a proper rebel. And if I had stayed in the country, I don't know where my, I would have ended up realistically. Um, I have friends who I know or people who I knew of at, at that time who ended up in jail. Um, so 
Jessica, yeah. I'm just going to ask you, the sound is not great. Okay. Um, I'm wondering what's happened there because it was okay a minute ago. Is that, should I hold it closer to my mouth? Is that better? No. It makes a big difference, actually. Okay. I'll, I can hold it like this. Okay. Is, are you sure? Have yeah, you it's fine. Hand in your hand? No, no, it's fine. So, um, yeah, so I don't blame them at all. I think they did me, a, you know, obviously in hindsight at the time I was very upset and very annoyed with everything, um, but I don't blame them at all um, because it, it made my life really, because it turned my life around. Um, but me and my brother were very, very close. And so that part did break me for a long time, but he would come every summer holidays to see me in India, but he just, he was like, I can't live in this country. How old was he? You were 15. I was 15 and he was 12. So it was a horrible period time, age for him as well. And obviously it's impacted his life drastically as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of sitting here trying to digest the amount of loss that you experienced. And your brother as a young 12 year old as well, losing his big sister essentially. Um, because India is the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as you said in that completely fast <laughs> um, torrent of an introduction, you moved to India and then when you were there, the aunt that you were living with developed a brain tumour? She developed, well, she had a brain tumour for 10 years and they didn't realise. Um, and so when they did finally realise and she was operated on her life, changed drastically she was a very independent woman and her life changed drastically um i don't want to go into too much detail about this because obviously this is somebody else's family member and i don't know if they mm -hmm. want that out in the public arena but uh yeah then she then unfortunately she passed away as well um which was really upsetting um so then i went back to live with my maternal uncle and um he back developed no he was in india as well he was in india as oh. well so I'd gone to stay with him, but due to the family logistics there at the time, um, they decided it was better for me to stay with the aunt because she had a daughter who was, kind of, they were hoping would be like a mentor type role model type person for me. I think that was what the reasoning was behind it. I don't know, if in, you know, I'm just guessing here. Um, and so when, fortunately, when she then passed away, I then went back to my maternal uncle and um, he then passed away in front of my eyes actually um of liver sclerosis and that was the hardest thing to watch because like both my parents i hadn't seen it happen but my uncles it happened in front of my eyes and i remember literally they had to hold me back because i was screaming at the doctor who'd come to assess him because he'd literally collapsed on the floor that you're not doing anything and he'd already pronounced him dead at that point and and i was just and i'm not somebody who screams at people i'm quite calm generally um and at that point I was just screaming he's not doing anything he's rubbish get somebody else he doesn't know what he's talking about and literally they were holding me back because I was literally I think I was going to pounce on the guy um it was mm. it was really hard and my uncle was the cuddliest teddy bear kind of guy he was just oh he was lovely he really was and so and that death actually really affected my brother in London as well because it happened just at his exam times um, and so it really impacted him as well, because he was really close to him when he would come. In India, everyone rides on mopeds. And when he would come to India, my brother would always be on the moped with my, with my uncle. Um, and so, yeah, it really affected him as well. 
I can even feel the impact of your story on my own body right now. And it just, you talk about this 15 year old who was a rebel. She was grieving, profoundly yeah. grieving such significant losses. And not only did your parents die, but you lost your, your home, your country, mm-hmm. your community, your friends. I assume at that point you identified as being British. Having oh, definitely. Raised yeah. There. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even now, uh, when anyone asks you, you know, I would say British. Um, and, you know, some people have said to me, yeah, but you're Indian as well, your ethnic heritage. And I'm like, yes, but that's my ethnicity. That's not who I am. I am British. I am British Indian. But, you know, British comes first because I was born and brought up here. Yeah. So this young British girl being put into a totally foreign country um, with totally different culture, yeah. customs yeah. and way of being. I mean, I'm blessed. I was surrounded by very loving people. I really was. Um, and I know a lot of people can't say that. So I do count my blessings. I do realize how lucky I was um, because no matter how, wherever I was placed or wherever I moved to, I was surrounded by love and loving people. Um, and so I'm blessed in that sense. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. And I suppose that's one of the benefits of that Indian heritage is family is really family, um, much more than just the nuclear family. Definitely. People will mind each other and take care of each other. Mm-hmm. So how did this impact on you, both as a young woman and, you know, we uh, hear about how you've got to where you are today, but... Uh, what was the impact of this uh, for you, Tessie? Uh, I think I threw myself into study. I was a people pleaser because, um, and I didn't realize that at the time, but I now know I had severe abandonment issues, understandably. Um, and that has actually only just hit me recently that it was abandonment issues I, was, I had. Um, but yeah, I was a full on people pleaser. I, would, I wouldn't say no to anything or anyone because I was so engrossed with pleasing people I would put myself in harm's way to please people I was that type of person um so yeah um it impacted me massively um and even now it impacts me um I mean if you and I'm going to just allude to this very quickly but um it impacted my I've been married for 22 years but I haven't emotionally connected in that time frame and what recently came to light, I've actually apologized to my children recently. I've got five children. Um, I have apologized to my children recently because I said, I have only just realized how emotionally detached I was during your younger years. And they were blessed them. They were so lovely. And um, they were all fine about it. And they're like, no, mom, don't worry. You don't have to apologize. But I really felt I needed to because I wasn't there for them realistically. I was there as the superficial mom who did everything, the functional stuff. Yeah, in, to the outside world, I looked like the perfect mother. 
all the toddler groups, all the, you know, any activities they needed to do, I would do all of that. So all the superficial stuff was there, but the emotional connection that children crave, I didn't provide that. And I see that now. Um, and I'm obviously bending over backwards now to make sure that I do provide that. Mm. Um, it's quite a journey you've been on. I mean, when you talk there about the people pleasing, we know that that's one of the stress responses, right? That we can go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, yeah. um, where we try and befriend everybody so that they won't eat us. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it's like, yeah, if I become your friend and be loved by you, I won't be harmed by you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like I said, when I, um, when I first got married, um, an incident happened on our honeymoon. Um, and it sounds really silly but it impacted me and I only just realized how much it impacted me. And I mean, only just literally in the last month, I think it was. Um, and it was basically, we were on a beach and I was wearing, uh, I, I basically didn't want to be splashed with water. And I'd said to my husband, um, I don't want to be splashed with water. And he obviously jokingly just carried on splashing me and it really annoyed me and I blew. I literally blew and that then became this um, whole thing where I went back to the room and he didn't come back for a few hours so for me at that point there's that whole abandonment thing comes in again and so my defense mechanism kicked in which I didn't realize until now and I was like okay fine I can never be myself in front of this person I cannot state how I feel I will have to always put up a pretense because I don't trust him enough now to be myself and so to keep myself safe within this relationship I have to always have the wall up and that's what I then did because if I show who I truly am he will abandon me yeah. and so I had this massive wall there and it's only come to light recently um how much of a disconnect I had so this bereavement all these early losses and unresolved grief and bereavement overload the layers of grief and loss one on top of each other has had a profound effect yeah. understandably in how you relate to people yeah and also I think the other thing I realized was that there was a lot of illness with all the death that I had in my life it was all surrounding some form of illness because my dad was a heart attack my mum had a heart operation that unfortunately we had been told was a 99% success rate so not for a second did I think she wouldn't make it out. And then to be told on that day that we'd lost her, that was just huge. And then to sit through the tribunal and hear what had happened, that was even bigger then. And it was, it, so yeah, that, so for me, illness, and I didn't realize this until recently, was somewhere where if my defense mechanisms came up. And so one of my children has, in fact, all of my children have different ailments. Um, and one of them has a chronic pain disorder. And I, for years, I put it down to something else. But I've just come to realize that a lot of it came from my emotional detachment from her. So I did apologize to her as well. And I said, when you really needed me, when during that whole illness, although I did the whole hospital appointments and everything like that, I did all of those things. And my other kids would say I was there for her 24 seven to the extent that they felt neglected in a way. Um, realistically, what she craved at that point was emotional attachment. And I wasn't able to provide that. And I now, in a way, maybe I'm blaming myself and think if I had provided that emotional attachment at that point when she craved it, 
maybe it wouldn't have got to the chronic stage it got to. But obviously that's all, you know, my thinking and my self-blame now and things We're coming into it. We're doing the very common mother thing that if yes. anything goes wrong with any of our children, yeah. We're utterly and a hundred percent to blame. Mm -hmm. Pauline Boss talks about this. You know, she, Dr. Pauline Boss, she developed an ambiguous loss or identified ambiguous loss, and she says, you know, she worked with people after nine eleven, mm -hmm. um, whose adult children were killed in the towers, um, but she said that most mothers managed to find a way to blame themselves, cool. despite the fact that it was a terrorist attack. And yeah. It's certainly my experience in clinical practice as well um, that a mother will always find a way to blame themselves. Yeah. And, and what you're saying could have elements of truth as well, of course. But yeah. it's so important that you don't beat yourself up. I know, which is, which is why I said to her when I spoke to her about it and I said, look, this is what my, this is how I feel. And I, I really feel like I owe you an apology for not being, and I'm hoping it will help you in your healing journey as well, mm. to know that this is, you know, this apology is coming from the heart. And if you ever did feel that, and I know she did um, at times, because she kind of meant, you know, there'd be comments she'd make, and I'd, at the time when she'd make them, I'd be heartbroken as a mother. <clears throat> and um, and I would think, and I would kind of think to myself, oh my God, am I really that bad a mother? You know, that she feels so disconnected. Um, and so, yeah, obviously it did impact her. So as you're going ahead on your counselling journey and learning more about yourself, you're starting to do a little bit of a life review mm. and an inventory of, of your relationships. So let's go back. I mean, you've, you said you've got five children. Five children. And yeah. you've been married for 22 years. And for anyone who's only listening to Tazeen and can see her, you look so young. You, you look like you're in your 20s. Oh, I wish. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you must have been a young bride, were you, Tessie? 24. Okay. Yeah, so I wasn't that young. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a totally different story as well. And that all comes from people-pleasing and, you know, conditioning beliefs that I'd had at that time as well. So, yeah. Um, Isn't but, it extraordinary how how we can get wrapped up in other people's stories or society's stories gosh. and we just roll along doing what we're expected to do, following some sort of path that we uh -huh. feel we have to follow, yeah. marrying who we think we ought to marry, yeah. uh -huh. having children, and then one day we wake up. Yeah. And think what what happened there? What do where? But this is why you know Adele's new song, "Easy on Me." Oh my God, it it speaks to me. That song does. I don't know it, but I'm going to listen to it as oh, soon as we finish. Yeah, it's okay. very yeah. Listen to the lyrics as well. They so speak to me. Um, so Tessine, I'm really curious about being Muslim and uh -huh. dealing with death. What is there any sort of cultural um, beliefs that impacted you? being a Muslim? Um, well, culturally, I was saying this to someone recently, actually, um, after I listened to your talk, and I was like, we do so much that is actually really good, as in like, we'll have like, because um, obviously we bury straight away, don't we? So everyone's there, everyone's um, surrounding you with love and everything. Um, and then we do, we, we'll kind of sing these hymn type things, and we'll have a sermon and things like that. So we do a lot of the kind of 
the vagus nerve calming type stuff all naturally i think we do a lot of that but i didn't realize that until recently and then we'll also have like the um a, a 40 days after we'll do something else so it kind of um it keeps you connected to that person um in a way but it and also just, just pause to pause you there for a minute when you said the vagus nerve calming, most people listening won't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Um, will you explain that a little bit about oh. the chanting when someone dies? Yeah, so and your understanding of that. Um, well, it was only after I heard you and how I when you'd mentioned how um, you know when you chant or you say kind of repetitive type of things, it kind of the um, I don't know how it works, but I would assume it's the kind of the the rhythmic kind of thing of it kind of helps to soothe you in a way um and so we'll have like these type they're like hymns but in urdu um and we'll have these type hymn type of things which everyone kind of reads along and everyone does a lot of re recitation of the quran and things like that um and all of that kind of ties all in together to kind of bring a sense of peace um and it's actually really calming and it's it's really you know it i and i didn't realize it at the time in fact it was and I'm probably jumping forward a lot here. It was when I lost my aunt and my cousin in COVID um, that I realized how much that connection means because we couldn't have it. And that loss then impacted me so much because for years I had thought when my mom had died, everyone was hugging you and everything, but I had been um, kind of, they'd sedated me. Uh, when my mom first passed away, I had gone into the shaking thing and they'd sedated me. So my body wasn't allowed to process that trauma in a way, mm. the way it's meant to, because I'd been sedated. So then when it came to the whole, when everyone came to see me, I felt like I was being forced to cry because everyone was expecting it of me. Because everyone comes to hug you and you're crying when you're hugging, but I had been sedated or I had so I was so numbed and I was in that denial phase um, that I didn't feel like crying, but I was feeling forced to cry. So for years, I thought, I hate that bit. I hate the part where people come and hug you and expect you to cry. But then when I lost my aunt and my cousin, who'd actually died in India, um, but when I lost them and I was in England at the time, so I couldn't be there, I couldn't be anywhere near them or anything. And I wasn't near family that understood because I was in Manchester. So I wasn't with my family who knew them. I couldn't connect with anyone for it. And I felt that so drastically and I thought, I want to hug. I want to hug and cry with someone right now who knows this pain that I'm feeling. Mm. And we couldn't do that. Um, but what was lovely was that we reconnected with so many other family members over Zoom. And that was nice. But that loss of touch, that loss of connection that you get at that point of time, I only appreciated that then. I didn't have that appreciation before. I mean, COVID bereavement is a whole other topic, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But something you said, Tessina, stayed with me about sitting there and wanting to cry and not being able to because you were sedated. You know, I've heard other people, bereaved parents, bereaved mothers, actually, several of them talk about that sense of just numbness at their child's funeral. And, you know, someone said to me that she actually pretended to cry yeah. because she felt so bad not crying. And yeah. of course she was utterly devastated. It's just that the devastation wasn't hitting in that particular moment. Because um, we move in and out of it, we know that dual process model, we move in of, into our grief, we move out of our grief, we move into our grief, we move out of our grief all the time. And it can be 
hard for people because, you know, expectations, societal expectations, hang on, I should be crying right now, as opposed to just trusting that their body is giving them a, a much needed break, you know. Um, what I also did, and I'm sorry to jump in here, was uh, three days after my mom died, and this was really bizarre, I went and got my third hole pierced because my mom was so anti me getting my third hole pierced. And I was angry, angry that she had gone. And also I was in denial. Uh, and I was like, well, if I do this, she'll come back. Kind of, Because in my head, somewhere at the back of my head, I thought my mom's gonna, she's, she's just gone somewhere. She's gonna be back. And so for a whole year, I was actually in denial. I didn't think that my mom had gone. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I went and got my third hole pierced. Everyone was like, what is she doing? Does she not an care? An earring, was it? Yeah, an earring. Yeah, I had my third. Because I wanted, yeah, because they were really in at that time, the third piercing. Mm. Um, and so I went and got that done um, purely to say, how dare you leave me kind of thing. But at that time, everyone's like, she doesn't care. So I was being judged for my reactions, basically. Um, mm. um, but it was like me saying, well, if I do this, then you're going to have to come back to tell me off. That's what the kind of things that were going in the back of my head, bizarre thinking, I know um but yeah um we and it was have bizarre thinking you know after a significant bereavement joan didion's book the year of magical thinking is a lovely example of that but i'm curious there about the piercings as well and you know is this a way to externalize our emotional pain when we go and get tattoos or piercings or it's almost like a socially acceptable self-harm which I didn't, I actually did start doing. I actually did start self-harming after mm. my mum died. Um, and yeah, it wasn't a very healthy period at all. Um, I you literally- yourself, Tessin? Yeah, um, a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I did start, and I, it, I got to the stage where if I felt I had upset someone in, in some way, I would cut myself because I would feel I deserve pain and I couldn't feel my mom's pain or I didn't want to feel that pain. So this pain's more bearable. Yeah. Let me. And so, so yeah, like I said, I didn't feel my mom's death until a year later. And what I actually did on that, when it finally hit me, I bunked off school and my mom was buried in Woking, which is quite far from where I lived in Tooting in London. So I couldn't get to that graveyard. And I went, bunked off school and I went and sat in the local graveyard. And there was this high alert out looking for me. I didn't even realize. And end of school time, uh, I think one of my friends then came to find me and she was like, maybe she'll be there. Let's go look there. And they found me and they were like, you know, people are looking for you. Are you aware of this? And I was like, you know, but that, you know, and it was something so bizarre that triggered it for me that I'd opened one of the cupboards at home and pulled out one of my mom's grinders. And um, when I pulled that grinder out, I was like, oh my God, she's never going to use this again. And it was that, that was my, that was the point where it finally hit me. And that's what we call that moment of acceptance of the loss yeah. and that it's like we can know in our head that someone has died but it can take quite a long time for that information to hit our gut yeah where we fully know that mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and we call it like the 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 reality of the loss accepting the reality of the loss which is very different to cognitively knowing that they're dead. Yeah, definitely. So you remember that moment holding her grinder yeah. when the penny dropped, she's yeah. not coming back. Yeah. How long was that after she had died? A whole year, it was literally a whole year. 
So it took a long time for me to finally get there. But even, I mean, even with my dad's, I was in such denial. And I, I used to be an avid reader at the age of nine. And so I would, this is really bizarre. I would think my dad was in hiding for some reason. And anyone with, my dad had a goatee. Uh, anyone with a goatee, I think, oh my God, that's my dad. He's watching me. He wants to make sure I'm safe, but he's watching me and he's in hiding and he's going to come back. Then I also, because Kentucky Fried Chicken's Colonel had the goatee, and I, you won't believe, this is just the, the bizarrest thinking ever. I would associate the Kentucky Fried Chicken Colonel with my dad. And I'd be like, oh, he's watching over me. He'd like that. It's, honestly, the things we think to make us, to help us get through loss sometimes. Yeah, the meaning we make or, or you know, sometimes we try to relocate them. We need to find them. Yeah. And for some people, it's so common. They find them in a robin or a butterfly or a feather. Yeah. And you as a nine-year-old phantom in the Kentucky Fried Chicken logo. <laughs> Which I'm not even allowed to eat because it's not halal in this country, a lot of them. <laughs> Um, there's something really lovely about you finding him there yeah and I'm <laughs> so curious to know where other people find their loved ones you know but it's true we look for them and I think it can take some time before we settle with that a year two years even before somehow we go ah that's where they are yeah. but it's a meaning that we make you know that you know definitely. we have to find that yeah definitely how are you doing right now? Um, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, no. uh, sometimes it kind of, I remember I went through this phase where I could just talk about it, but totally detached without, but recently since my whole um, journey of discovery and everything, I find that it hits me a lot more nowadays, I think. And also I remember we did this, we were doing this, um, it's an Islamic study group type thing. And we were doing that and it, death was one of the topics we were doing. And for years, I had told myself, because culturally we were told good people die young. And so for years, I told myself, my parents were good people. God wanted them with him rather than in this evil world. And that's kind of what got me through. And then in this talk, they'd kind of said, that's not actually true. And as a 40 plus woman, I literally broke down in floods of tears because they had taken something away from me that had held me together this actually still upsets me she's crazy mm -hmm. um they had taken from away from me and they didn't obviously they didn't mean to but mm -hmm. they had taken away from me something that had held me for so long the belief that you know my parents were so good and that's why they'd gone early yeah and this is this is so important actually because as cancers we learn you know, everybody has a different meaning. Everyone makes a different meaning of, um, you know, why someone has died, what their life means now, where they are. And it's never our job to contradict that. Yeah. So, you know, whilst I don't believe in heaven, if somebody that I'm supporting has firmly relocated their deceased loved one in heaven, I will never take that from them. That's yeah. That's what they believe, and mm -hmm. that's where they have relocated them to. Yeah, I can feel the agony of that moment. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's like yeah. Where your your belief system is shattered, and well, what's true now? If that's not true, what's true now? Yeah, exactly. Oh, and it's, it's actually lovely to see you tearing up. <laughs> um, and after all of this time, being able to finally feel your grief, mm -hmm. being safe enough. Yeah to feel your grief 
-hmm. Well, with my dad's grief, I didn't, I wasn't actually allowed to feel it for years because my mom had a heart condition. And so every time she remembered my dad, she would faint and she would make this noise before she fainted. And that noise I can still hear sometimes. Um, and it would petrify the life out of me because I think, oh my God, mom, something's going to happen to mom. And um, so in a way I had to suppress my grief for my dad. So at the age of nine, I was suppressing that grief. And so what that also impacted my children because what I found was I didn't know how to connect with my children after that age. My dad, I was a daddy's girl. I truly was a daddy's girl. He would play this song because he, he used to work from home. He was an accountant. So his office was in the house. He would play this song, which would signify I could go back into the room. He was free at that point, And I would run in and jump on the desk. And um, so lovely, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so when I lost him and I couldn't process that grief, um, I remember, you know, I, I didn't realize I'd held it in for so long. But what it then did is once my kids, because I've obviously I've got a wide range now, once they hit the age of nine, I didn't know how to be with them anymore it's like I would push them away so they would come for a hug and something and I would hug them but it wouldn't be a hug from the heart so eventually they got to the stage where they didn't want that hug anymore because they could sense it somehow and that breaks my heart now it really does break my heart but and now with the younger ones I'm consciously making so what my youngest my very youngest now is actually nine and I make a conscious effort to make sure I keep that hug and that love going because I know how much I've impacted the older ones unknowingly. Um, and that that really does break my heart, it really does. And I talk to them very openly about this because I want them to know, you know, that there, these are elements that they can, with work, they can change it, turn it around. And, and, you know, you'll know from your studies that it's never too late to earn a secure attachment. Yes. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who didn't have a secure attachment when we were young. Yeah. I mean, it's hard work, but we can earn it. We can get that. Yeah, and which is why I'm trying to provide that now for them mm. um, as much as I can because, um, but I mean, there's two of them will actively, if you try to hug them, they will push you away and that breaks my heart. They will actually go, no, don't hug me. And yet when they're outside with their friends, they're happy to hug the friends. But at home, because they haven't felt safe feeling that connection, they don't do it. So it's still a work in progress yeah, connecting definitely. at home yeah how do you feel I mean it, it sounds like I was going to ask you a question but I kind of know the answer that all of these losses had such a profound impact on your life and particularly on all your relationships oh definitely yeah I mean I've recently had EMDR for my dad's loss because I knew that was impacting me um, and it was after that EMDR session so that, maybe just for listeners, explain oh, what EMDR is. It's um, eye movement desensitization. I can't remember what the R stands for. <laughs> but um, basically, it was a Zoom-based session where they... Um, so it's basically like, imagine your head was a computer system and it helps to reprogram elements of it or something like that. I don't know how it works exactly. But it, I mean, it's for me, good. it definitely... Yeah, it worked for me in that sense. Because it's good for single event trauma, they say. Yeah, um, and so well, I was actually having it for something else, but that was, she'd asked me for three different scenarios that had impacted my life. And that was obviously, that came to me first because I knew that I hadn't ever processed my dad's grief. And I must admit when I did that whole EMDR thing, because you do this thing where you, you're moving your eyes, 
you're listening to a sound. So all of your senses are engaged in some way. Um, and then you're hearing back what you've kind of described as a painful experience or whatever it is. And so all of my senses are engaged and then she's reading it back to me and then you process it in a different way. Um, and so that's how we were doing it. And after the end of that session, I cried like a baby. Uh, I'm not joking, I cried like a baby. And it was like I was finally able to let go and release that pain I had felt from my dad's loss. Mm. That's how I felt. I, I literally felt like a nine-year-old child finally getting that release. Mm. And so it was very, very powerful. And I needed that release. I think I really needed that release. And it sounds like what I said at the beginning when we met, you were so enthusiastic to consume the information that I was offering via the grief education program, the podcast, like there's still such a hunger in you to understand how this grief has impacted you. Um, what is it like for you? I mean, you mentioned Julia Samuel and you know my work as well. What is it like for you to find information that gives you answers, that explains things, that, you know, sort of sets you off on a journey of learning and understanding? For me, I wish I had known this sooner. I really do, because I feel in a way, oh, when I hear it, it gives me so much because it explains so much to me in a way about me as well and how I've processed things or not processed things as the case may be in my case. But it also shows me where I went. And I know I shouldn't say it like this, but how much wrong I did to the children unknowingly. And that really, and I just think if I had known this before, things would have been so different. My kids' lives could have been different in a way. And yes, it is that whole blame thing where I blame myself. And, but I also understand where it comes from. So although I blame myself, I, I understand it as well. And so when I apologize to the children, I apologize heartfelt. It's a heartfelt apology, but it's also, although it sounds like I'm trying to justify it, I'm not justifying it. I'm just helping them to understand where my wounds came from so that they can then if they ever then find that they're on that journey of healing, which they probably will be at some stage of their life, at least that part of it, the door is open for them, kind of, if that makes sense. Mm. I think, you know, every relationship is repetitive cycles of attunement, rupture and repair, attunement, rupture, repair, and the damage is done not by the rupture, but by the lack of repair. Definitely. Um, I think that's Richard Rohr, is it? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but that sense of we will all have ruptures in every relationship and it's repairing them. Yeah. That is so essential. And Definitely. not if we have a rupture, but when we have a rupture, how can we repair it? Yeah. So where to now, Tazim? Well, I, uh, like I said, the counseling journey, my clients, uh, I love them. Every single client might literally, when I am in a client session, I am, this, and this is the other thing I noticed. When I'm with my client, I can give them everything. Emotionally, I am there for them because they have no expectation from me. But when I'm in my personal relationships, there's an expectation. And so that wall comes up. And so that is something I will definitely need to work on, I think, um, because I definitely can sense when I'm with 
and this is with everyone and I, this only came to me when my husband said to me actually you connect with everyone in the outside world everyone you give your soul to but you can't do that with me and it's then that I realized you're so right I can't I just literally can't give myself to you because you have an expectation from me mm. and I don't want that I don't want to be that vulnerable with anyone else I don't have to be vulnerable I can give myself because there's no expectation back and so I can do that but when you're placing an expectation on that then that makes me vulnerable and I'm not prepared to make myself vulnerable right now I don't feel safe enough to be vulnerable mm. so it, yeah agree I think this loss and everything has taken so much from me without me realizing um yeah and it's impacted a lot of my life without me really, really I mean I was going through life just living the motions it was like I was on autopilot literally on autopilot there was no feeling I remember saying to my husband recently oh, oh relationships are transient you know yeah for your kids you're there always but any other relationship transient <laughs> that was how I felt for a long time well why would you bother attaching to anyone they might die yeah if that's been your experience yeah yeah, and I think it's so important, you know, we can understand so much from listening to podcasts or pursuing courses, but, you know, a really good therapist can help us because we will usually repeat the patterns of our relationships yeah. in therapy with our therapist in time, um, but hopefully they won't let us scurry out the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They will help us to stay the stay the the time needed mm -hmm. to to change those patterns. Definitely. So, what was it like for you today, telling your story? Uh, I actually find telling my story is quite freeing. It's quite liberating, um, and I feel like it's like you're putting down a weight that you've been carrying for a long time. Um, so, I do feel. Um, I, and I, I, I do this with a lot of things that have happened in my life now. I am very forthcoming um, with things that the Asian community might find quite taboo in some cases. But I am very forthcoming because Asians tend to be keep it inside, keep it whole, don't, don't tell anyone your story. But I'm like, no, because then no one can learn, no one will understand. And so I'm very different in that respect. Um, and I think it doesn't sit well with my in-laws as well, actually, because they're very closed people. Um, they like to keep everything hidden behind closed doors. And I'm, I'm very, it is what it is. Uh, I am who I am. Life made me this way. And, but it took me a long time because I put up pretenses for such a long time. Mm. I, I was putting on an act for such a long time and it wore me down. Um, I became a shopaholic for a while because I was... I, you know, I need a dist distraction from all this, whatever I was holding in for so long. Yeah. Um, so and I think that's, you know, there's plenty of non-Asians who keep everything behind closed doors and don't <laughs> tell the neighbors and don't be talking about that. Um, somehow we carry a lot of shame around being real, which is yeah. ludicrous. Yeah. And I really hope that's going to change, yeah. you know, for our children um that we stop pretending we're something that we're not and also why do we care what the world thinks you know as long as you're being kind empathetic and nice as long as you're not doing something to harm someone 
why why do we put so much emphasis on what people think of us and yet that's that controls us it's controlled me for years yeah and yes when, when people will hear your story or watch this on youtube I'm sure there will be some young Asian women who will be so relatable and so grateful to hear somebody, you know, sharing a story that sounds a little bit like theirs, you know. Um, you know, I can certainly relate to the don't tell people about that and close the door and, you know, don't speak about that outside the family. Yeah. In lots of scenarios where it's deemed socially unacceptable. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's what we call a, a disenfranchisement. Society doesn't speak, doesn't really accept that. So um, let's not speak about it. But it's funny because we have society as if, you know, we talk about what they say, mm -hmm. like who the hell are they? Yeah. <laughs> this um, sort of big thing that's out there judging us. But actually when it boils down to it and we talk to people, most people are a lot more, I think anyway, I like to think open-minded and understanding and compassionate than we give them yeah. credit for, mm -hmm. you know, this Absolutely. big other thing looking down on all of us. Mm. Yeah, we make them out to be so scary, whoever they are. <laughs> yeah, but when we take a risk, it's exactly like you said, when we take a risk to go against that and go, here's my truth and I'm going to speak it mm -hmm. because it's killing me by not speaking it. Yeah then we tend to be met by so many people who say, thank you, that helped. I'm grateful you shared. It's given me the courage to do the same. And I think it normalizes this experience for so many people. Definitely. But Tazine, I really admire you. You've been through a tremendous amount of loss in your life already. And I hope that the second part of your life now will be full of you know, much more moments of peace and that you find a way to take down the wall. I had a young girl actually I supported in, in therapy and um, she used to describe the session. She said, every week there's a brick coming down off the wall. Uh -huh. That's how she described it. So I hope you find ways to take the bricks down off Thank the you. wall yeah. that's between you and the people who matter the most to you. Yeah, thank you. I hope so too. It's a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, it's been really lovely speaking to you. Anna, thank you very much, Liz. It's been lovely speaking to you as well. And thank you for your work as well. It's amazing. And I'm really looking forward to starting that course soon. Super. And all I look right. forward to hearing from you how you get on. I will let you know. Thank you.